All right, so I read the scripture already. Um, for those of you who are here, it was Luke 24, 13 through 35. Jesus is on the road. Uh, he meets two disciples on the road walking to a little town called Emmaus. This is his first post-resurrection appearance in Luke's gospel. And he appears to, to two disciples, and we don't know anything about them. We don't hear anything about them afterwards. We don't know anything about them before. And Jesus spends the day with them, right? He rose from the dead early in the morning when the sun was coming up. And by the time uh, sun is setting, he's eating dinner with them. And then he disappears. He spent the day with them. And what did he do? Well, here's what what verse 27 says, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. You know what he did? He walked down the road with two unknown disciples, and he explained how the whole of the Old Testament points to him. Now, uh, after he disappears... Next week, we're going to read, he reappears in the middle of the apostles. And in essence, he teaches them the same thing that he just taught these disciples. Um, it says, then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in, and then he talks about the threefold division of the Old Testament, uh, in the law of Moses and the prophets and the psalms must be fulfilled. Um, the whole of Scripture points to Jesus. Not that every verse has Jesus hidden in it. Rather, the whole picture of the storyline of the Old Testament points uh, to Jesus. Um, interesting thing about this, this uh, threefold division, the law of Moses, prophets, and the psalms, um, next slide. If um, there's a little debate between Catholics and Protestants over which books really belong in the Old Testament. And uh, Catholic Bibles have more books in their Old Testament than Protestant Bibles. Did you know that? Um, had a friend once who, had, who he was Protestant, but he carried a a Catholic Bible with him, and I said, why did, why did you buy that Bible? And he said, you get more for your money that way. Um, but uh, this debate, how many books should really be in the Old Testament, one of the arguments for the reason the Protestants have the books that we have is because when Jesus says uh, the, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, that's how the Hebrew canon is divided. The law are the first five books uh, that Moses wrote. And then the prophets are different than, than how we would divide them up. There were the early prophets and the latter prophets, but that would be uh, the historical section. And then the Psalms referred to Psalms and Job and Proverbs and all, all that are listed there. But um, in essence, he is referring to the Old Testament by this threefold division, which corresponds to the Protestant Old Testament canon. That's, that's not the point of the sermon. That's extra. You get that for free today, okay? Yeah. 
bonus knowledge today. Um, now, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to imagine that we have joined Jesus on the road to Emmaus. And we're going to go through some, some places in the Old Testament and see that they point to Jesus. Uh, we'll, see, we'll see how many we cover if you're still awake at the end, okay? I'll see if you're, you're still with me. Um, but we're going to do, let's put it this way. This may have been the Bible study Jesus did with these two disciples. We don't know what verses he covered, um, but the question is, where does the Old Testament point to Jesus? So, uh, so let's begin in the book of Genesis. God uh, creates the world, and he uh, puts a man and a woman in the garden. He says, you can eat from all the trees, just don't eat from that one tree. And the tempter, in the form of a serpent, remember that word, serpent, um, tempts Eve to eat from the tree. And it says Adam was standing there watching, and uh, then he ate from the tree. So they sin. They rebel against God. They decide. They listen to the serpent, and they decide, yeah, this, this God is not a good God. He's tricking us. We know better than him. We'll become like him. And they eat from the tree. And that's when sin enters into the world. That's when death enters into the world. That's called the fall. And they are kicked out of the garden. Now, um, God curses them. He gives a curse to the man. The curse is that there will be pain when you labor. And he curses the woman. There will be pain when you go into labor. Okay? So he curses the man and the woman. And then he curses the serpent. But in the curse to the serpent, he gives a promise to us. And here is the curse slash promise slash prophecy. I will put enmity between you, Mr. Serpent, and the woman. Okay, enmity, strife between snakes and women, between Eve and uh, this serpent. Between your offspring, your followers, and her offspring. But then, look at this. He, what's, who's the he referring to? A specific offspring, a specific descendant of Eve shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Some translations say, he shall crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. What, what is that saying? That a human descendant of Eve is going to crush the head of Satan. He will be our hero. He will be our rescuer. He'll get damaged in this process. His heel is going to be bruised, but he will be victorious over the serpent. Now, that's the first mention of Jesus in the Bible. Chapter 3. Now, I think if you were to show that to a Jewish skeptic 
or a hardened skeptic and say, see, that's Jesus right there. They, they wouldn't buy it. They're not going to agree with that. Uh, but here's how I think we need to look at this and a whole bunch of verses that we're going we're gonna to cover. Have you ever seen the movie The Sixth Sense? It's the one where Bruce Willis is, um, he's a counselor, and this little boy says, I see dead people. Remember that? Okay. And you go through the whole movie. Bruce Willis is in virtually every scene. And then at the end of the movie, you realize he's dead. His character was one of the dead people that this little boy saw throughout the movie. And then there's a quick like flashback to all, a bunch of scenes, and it all goes, you go, oh, wow. And if you watch it a second time, you can see that, he, that people aren't really talking to him in each scene. And uh, it's an M. Night Shyamalan movie, okay? Um, that it has a surprise ending, and then it all falls into place. I think that's the way this works. You look at these verses... I don't know that anyone is going to necessarily convince a skeptic, but then at the end, when Jesus shows up, you go, well, who else could it be? Right? Who else is going to take a bite in the heel, going to be bit and suffer, yet crush the head of the serpent? Now, um, you say, did Jesus think he was the fulfillment of this verse. I think he did. Take a look at Luke 10. He sends 72 of his disciples out to cast out demons and to preach the gospel and to do miracles. And they come back. And it says the 72 return with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven when you were out doing ministry. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Yes, here in this context, it's being fulfilled by his followers, by his apostles and the 72, but it's a delegated authority that comes from him, and he is crushing the head of the serpent. In fact, this is a, uh, a fulfillment of uh, next verses, 1 John 3, 8. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So first place we see Jesus show up is in Genesis 3.15, I think he probably pointed to that on the road to Emmaus. Let's, let's uh, do another one. Um, there are prophecies in the Old Testament, like, like this one. Uh, there, there are ones where there's a prediction and an exact fulfillment in Jesus, like he'll be born of a virgin. Guess what? Jesus, born of a virgin. He will be born in the little town of Bethlehem. Guess what? Born in Bethlehem. So there are prediction fulfillment fulfillments. But then there's another way the Old Testament uh, points to Jesus. And I'm going to call it through trajectories. What's a trajectory? Well, it's an event or a happening 
that points out uh, on a smaller scale Jesus on a bigger scale. So, for example, um, Noah's Ark. Let's uh, talk about Noah's Ark. What happened? The world became sinful, and God judged the world by flooding it, but he also rescued a family, Noah's family, and two of each animal, uh, in an ark. Noah built an ark. So it's a story of judgment and rescue. By the way, Jesus, in the Olivet Discourse, when he's talking about his return, he says, it's going to be like in the days of Noah. People are busy doing their own thing, and he's going to return suddenly. And like the flood came quickly, his return is going to come quickly, and there's going to be judgment. And at the same time, there will be rescue. He will rescue those who believe in him. Um, Did the apostles make a connection between Noah's ark and Christ? Yeah. Uh, Peter, in 1 Peter 3, now this is a really complicated passage, and I, I'm, I, I put three dot, dot, dots in there to, to kind of simplify it for us, but it says, for, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. So there is, um, Christ is going to bring us to God, he's going to rescue us. And Peter goes on to say, talk about the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Peter connects Noah's ark, judgment, and rescue with Jesus, who came to bring us to God. Okay? Every episode in the Old Testament where God rescues his people, whether it's Noah's ark or walking through, for example, the Red Sea, there's judgment upon Pharaoh and his army and rescue of his people. Uh, Every incident where the Jewish people are in trouble and God rescues them is is a mini arrow pointing to Jesus, our rescuer. So there's direct prophecies. There are trajectories And then there are what you call types. What's a type? Well, a type is a person or an object or a a festival that pictures something about Jesus, that foreshadows Jesus. So uh, if we we continue in the story, after the flood, the earth gets populated and um, sin continues. And of all the families on the earth... God chooses one guy, a guy named Abraham, and he says, you know, in essence, that that seed that's going to come from Eve, that's going to be the rescuer, that seed's going to come through your lineage, Abraham, all right? That promised seed will come through you, not through the Philistines, not through the Canaanites, not through the Egyptians, but through you. And Abraham believes in him, believes that God will do this. But here's the problem. Abraham's 99. 
and his wife is 90. No children yet. All right. So God gives them a miracle baby. Named, what was, what was their son's name, anybody? This will be an interactive time now, okay. Isaac, very good, all right, shout it out. He's the child of promise, and finally, they have their son. And then God says, Abraham, what I want you to do is sacrifice him. Take him up on a mountain with wood, and then stab him, kill him burn him. This is your promised child that I want you to sacrifice. Okay. Um, as they're going up the mountain, here's the interaction. And Isaac said to his father, Abram, Abraham, my father, he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, by the way, Josh, if you want my attention later on, say dad, say dad. dad. Here I am, Josh. Okay. Um, he said, behold, the fire and the wood, you know, he's carrying the wood up the mountain, um, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. Now, if you have an ESV study Bible, here's what the note says. It's unclear whether Abraham was speaking ironically here, and then in, in parentheses it says, in other words, Isaac is the lamb, or whether he's expressing faith that God will preserve his son. Okay. Now, um, I lean toward the first interpretation, that when Abraham said God will provide the lamb, Isaac got it. I'm the lamb, okay? You know, um, I, did, I looked for pictures. By the way, these pictures are all from the Gospel Project. They put all their stuff up on, on the web for free, so I figured we could, we could use them. Um, so uh, there are, I Googled pictures, and I, I, I found some, some uh, coloring book pictures for little children, and there was one with like a three-year-old toddler hogtied uh, on on the the altar, and Abraham's got the knife, and you're supposed to give that to your toddlers to color, <laughs> and then you know explain what's going on there. So um, now we don't know how old Isaac was, but some of the rabbis who wrote before the time of Christ said he was 37. Okay, so don't picture a little toddler being terrified with a knife. I see it as Isaac understands that he's the lamb, and he keeps walking up the hill with wood to be sacrificed. Does that maybe ring a bell of what might be pointing to somebody? Okay. Um, by the way, you go, how could Abraham do this? Well, we're told in the New Testament what he was thinking. Here we go. Hebrews eleven nineteen. He, Abraham, considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. 
So Abraham's thought was, I'm going to obey God because God's going to raise him from the dead. And I imagine that's what Isaac was thinking. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but I trust God and I trust my dad. So Josh? No. Uh, (laughs) Um, It is also interesting that in John 3.16, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. So the most famous verse in the Bible, God speaks of his only son. Let's go back to... to uh, Genesis 2.22, God says to Abraham, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. This is clearly a type of Christ. Now, You know that when Abraham raises the knife, he sees a ram in the bushes. And he puts two and two together, and he says, oh, okay, the ram, God is providing a a lamb, a ram in place of my son. And at that point, the type changes from Isaac to now the type is the ram who takes Isaac's place. In other words, there's two types pointing to Jesus. One is Isaac, the other is uh, the ram. Now, here's something you may never have seen before. Uh, Click. So Abraham called the... so, So he sacrifices the lamb and burns it. So Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide. So the name of the mountain is the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, On the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Now, here's what's interesting. God already provided the substitute. Yet, the name of the mountain is the Lord will provide. And it is said on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And each English translation preserves the idea that there's still a future provision that's going to take place on that mountain. Do you know what that mountain is? Well, a thousand years later, on that very mountain, is where Solomon built the temple... And then a thousand years later, Jesus was crucified outside the walls of the temple on Mount Moriah. On this mountain, the Lord will provide. You should be having a chill right now, okay? All right, so... um, let me move a little bit quicker. That, this is all in the book of Genesis. At the end of the book of Genesis, um, we read the story of, of Joseph. Now, they will tell you, you've got to be careful when it comes to types, that you don't find Jesus hiding under every rock. Okay? Um, and some people would say Joseph is not a type of Jesus. 
And I go, if he's not a type of Jesus, then um, there are, boy, I've, I've, I've really misread Scripture. Let me remind you the story of, of uh, Joseph. So Joseph, so, so Abraham has Isaac. Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau. Jacob has 12 sons. The youngest is Joseph. And uh, his father favors him. He's beloved by his father. So his brothers hate him. And his brothers betray him, and they sell him into slavery, where he is eventually thrown into a dungeon, into the lowest of pits. But then, because he can interpret dreams, he's exalted to the right hand of Pharaoh, where he comes up with a plan to save not only the Jews, but the Gentile world by giving them bread. Does that sound familiar? beloved of the father, betrayed by his brothers, to the lowest of pits, to the highest of heights, to the right hand of God, he saves the world. I'm going to say it's a a type of... I'm going to go out on a limb and say it's a type of Jesus, okay? And Jesus may have pointed to this as he's walking down uh, the road to Emmaus, okay? Um, And then the, the book of Genesis... The conclusion to that story uh, is this. Joseph says, you, my brothers, you planned this for evil, but God planned it for good to save many lives. And uh, Herod and Pontius Pilate and Judas and uh, the Romans planned it for evil to kill Jesus, but God meant it for good, the saving of many lives. So then the Jews are down in Egypt for 400 years. And God raises up a guy named Moses. And um, Moses is going to set the people free. He's supposed to go to Pharaoh, the ruler of Egypt, and say, let my people go. And Pharaoh won't do it. So God brings 10 plagues upon the Egyptians. And the last plague is uh, the plague of the death of the firstborn. Josh, you're the third born, so relax, okay? Um, so the, the angel of death is going to pass over Egypt, and every firstborn son will die. The only problem in this whole thing is it's certainly it's going to get the Egyptians' attention, but you know what? The Jews are sinful people too. What about their firstborn? So God says, here's what you do. I want you, each family, to take a lamb and kill the lamb. You're going to eat that lamb, and you're going to drain the blood out of it first. And what you're going to do is you are going to put the blood of the lamb on your doorposts. And then when the angel of death passes through Egypt, he will pass over every house that has the blood of the lamb covering it and you'll be spared judgment. I am sure Jesus pointed to the Passover on the road to Emmaus, or on this little Bible study that he's having. The blood of the Lamb, if it covers you, death will pass over you, and you will not be judged. Now, um, 
you could add to this sacrifice the entire sacrificial system, which in the book of Leviticus uh, is all about uh, priests and they build a temple and, uh, and they're to sacrifice lambs and bulls and goats and um, that's how your sins are forgiven. A, a, an animal takes your place as a substitute. But when we get to the New Testament, here's what it says in Hebrews. Uh, and by the way, yep, there's a beautiful picture of a priest slaying a lamb. But if we can go back, back um, in Hebrews 10, it says, For it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Those were all just types. Those were all just pictures that are fulfilled in Jesus. Okay? So, um, we, we read about uh, the Exodus in the book of Exodus. We read about uh, the, the sacrifices in the book of Leviticus. Let's go to the book of Numbers. In the book of Numbers, so the, the Israelites have, have escaped. They've gone through the Red Sea. And the problem with the Israelites is they're grumblers. So let's move ahead here. And um, God does these miracles, and he provides magic manna, donuts from heaven every morning, all right, and quail. And after about 40 years, they're like, well, it's not even 40 years. It's still in the first year. They go, we don't like the food around here. You know, it was better in Egypt. We go for days without water sometimes. Um, we, we, don't, we don't like this raw deal that you're giving us. So you know what God does? God doesn't like his people grumbling. So he sends snakes amongst them. And the snakes are poisonous, and they start biting the Israelites. And they say, we repent, we repent. And uh, God says, okay. Here's what I want you to do, Moses. I want you to make a bronze statue of a snake and put it on a pole and hold it up in the air. Right? So if uh, you do that, here's what they can do. If they're bit by a snake and they're dying, all they have to do is look at the snake on the pole and they'll be healed. Now, um, that is a picture of Jesus. Remember, it says, cursed is anyone who is hung on a tree. Jesus became a curse for us. He was lifted up on the cross, and by looking to him and believing in him, we are healed of the curse of sin. Now you go, that's a stretch, Pastor Brian. I was with you so far. I'm not buying that one. What did Jesus say? If you look at John, we all know John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. What does Jesus say right before John 3.16? John 14, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. I imagine Jesus pointed to the snake in the story of Moses. And said, yeah, that is a type that I fulfill. Okay? If you think it's a stretch, take it up with Jesus. All right? Then there's the book of Deuteronomy. Moses writes the first five books of the Bible. In the book of Deuteronomy, um, 
Moses is considered to be a prophet. And in Deuteronomy 18.15, it says this, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. So Moses is considered to be the uber-prophet in Israel. And he says, be looking for another guy who's like me. You're to really listen to him. And at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, it says, and there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses. So Moses is kind of set apart as the super prophet. If, if anyone um, comes close to Moses as a prophet in the Old Testament, it's Elijah. Right? So those are the two super prophets. Now, um, if you remember, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up on a mountain. Moses hung out on mountains. Jesus takes them up on a mountain. And do you remember who appears with Jesus on this mountain? Shout it out. Elijah and Moses. So there's the three of them. And what happens to Jesus? His face starts shining. Right? Not Moses' face. Not Elijah's face, but Jesus' face shines. Now, now remember, God's, God says, it is to him you shall listen. This, this Moses-like prophet that's still coming in the future. And what does God say? And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Right? Listen to this Moses. He's the one to make it clear with the shining face in the middle of the mountain with Moses who doesn't have a shining face and Elijah who doesn't have a shining face. Okay? All right. So now let me just quickly touch on, on a bunch of others. You know, um, after Moses is the book of Joshua, and uh, Joshua, which in Hebrew is Yeshua, which by the time you turn it into Greek, it's Jesus. So uh, guess what? Joshua is a type of Jesus. Joshua leads the people into the promised land. The literal, physical promised land. Jesus will lead us into the eternal promised land. After the book of Joshua is the book of Judges, where everybody does what's right in his own eyes, and it's just a mess. And even the heroes, the judges that God raises up, are pretty uh, sinful people. So we could look at any one of them, but there's, um, in particular, we all know Samson, um, who <laughs> he had a problem with women, right? He liked them, and he was immoral. But he was a strong guy who, in this picture, he slew a thousand Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey. And the book ends with him pushing the, he's at the Super Bowl, and he's in a coliseum, and he pushes the pillars down, and it kills 3,000 Philistines. So here we have a very imperfect, single-handed Savior who defeats the enemy single-handedly. And he's a type of the coming Savior who righteously does that. Okay? Then there's Ruth. Ruth um, is really a story about Boaz. Ruth is a, a uh, 
um, not a, she's a Gentile. She's not an Israelite. She's poor. She's a widow. She has a mother who's a widow. And they go to Bethlehem. And a guy named Boaz, who's a distant relative, has pity on her. And he redeems her by buying back uh, some old family uh, property. He buys back a field for her and marries her and rescues her. Jesus buys us back from slavery and marries us, the church. Oh, and by the way, they have a little baby named Obed, and then he has a son named Perez, Hezron, Ram, Amidadab, Nashon, Salmon, Jesse, and then David. Um, so, so it all ties together. But the big picture is that Boaz is a type of Christ. Then David, King David, God says, let's give Israel some, some kings. And David uh, is the second king of Israel. And he's a man after God's own, own heart. And he's, he's godly. But he has his fatal flaw. Women, right? He's got plenty of wives, but he looks at a woman bathing Bathsheba, and he takes her for himself and kills her husband, commits adultery and murder. So he's not the seed that we're looking for, but God introduces the idea that the seed will come through a line of kings. And all the kings, even the godliest of them, have flaws. So we're looking for a king who's the descendant of Eve, but it's not David, and it's not Hezekiah, and it's, it's none of the kings uh, so we're still waiting, all right? Um, so those, that's the, the, the historical books. Let me touch on one verse in one of the Psalms. In Psalm 16, David says to God, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, to the grave, or let your holy one see corruption. David Uh, died. And a thousand years later, Peter, on the day of Pentecost, quotes this verse. And here's his commentary on that verse. He's talking to thousands of Jewish people. And he says, brothers, I may say to you with all confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us today. And he could have pointed over there. There's David's tomb. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw, David foresaw, and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are witnesses. You say, where does it say in the Old Testament that the Christ um, will rise from the dead? Peter would say it was Psalm 16 Verse 10. We could point to Isaiah, born of a virgin. He will be uh, a child born, but he will be called mighty God. He will uh, be pierced for our transgressions. All right? many, many prophecies in the book of, uh, of Isaiah. But I'm going to close, and you're like, Whew, thank you. Um, I'm going to close with Jonah because the youth group's studying the book of Jonah, right? Click. Um, Jonah 
is not a good guy. Just like everybody in the Old Testament has their flaw. Jonah's got a bad attitude. God tells him to go to Nineveh, and he goes the opposite direction. So he ends up thrown overboard and swallowed by a big old fish. And uh, Jesus says, uh, just like Jonah was three days in the belly of the fish, I will be three days in the belly of the earth, and then I will raise from the dead. So the three days Jesus uses as a type pointing to him. But there's another place where Jonah is a type of Jesus. And that is before he's thrown into the sea, God sends this hurricane upon this ship of pagan sailors. And Jonah's sleeping in the the hull of the ship. And they find him and they go, we know God's upset with you. And uh, they say, what what should we do with you? And Jonah says in Jonah 1.12, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. This wrath you see is my fault. Throw me into the sea. Throw me into the wrath of God. And it will calm down. And they throw him into the sea and it calms down. Jonah is willing to absorb the wrath of God for these others. Jesus was willing to absorb the wrath of God for us. So, I hope I've made my point that the Old Testament is about Jesus. Sometimes through prophecies, sometimes through trajectories, sometimes through types. Be careful that you don't find Jesus under every rock. But on the other hand, don't think it's just a nice bunch of of unrelated stories All of them ultimately find their fulfillment in Jesus. All right, let's pray. Lord, not only do we praise you that you are the fulfillment, but we thank you that your word is inspired. There's no way authors who wrote hundreds of years before your birth could even know uh, that it all comes together and is fulfilled in you. So thank you, Lord. Um, for your word. Thank you for being willing to absorb the wrath of God on our behalf. And we want to close, Lord, by praising you. In your name, amen.